Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial now in the hands of the jury, where outside the courthouse, protesters are gathering and the Wisconsin National Guard has been deployed. Joining us is Patrick Blanchfield, a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book, Gunpower, The System of American Violence, will appear from Verso Books later this year. And he joins us to discuss his article at Gawker, Kyle Rittenhouse is an American. Our country's legal history renders the teen's case familiar, if not inevitable. We'll discuss the possibility of an acquittal, which the judge appears to want, and whether that will signal to the 30% of Republicans who in a recent poll agreed that violence might be necessary, that it is now open season on left-wing protesters. Then we'll speak with Chris Anadi, a freelance writer and photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Washington Post, Financial Times and The Wall Street Journal, among many others. He has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader at an elite Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document addiction in the Bronx. He's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, and he has an article at his substack, Among the Unvaccinated, Meaning, Death, and Owning the Elites. And we will discuss the defiant attitudes of back row Americans who consider their unvaccinated status a badge of honor. Then finally, we will speak with Anne-Marie Lafazo, a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, where she teaches labor and employment law, jurisprudence, and comparative labor law. She's also a research scholar for the NYU Center for Labor and Employment, and we will discuss Trump's vengeance tour in West Virginia, where he is backing a congressman he is endorsing over another Republican congressman who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Patrick Blanchfield, who's a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Book Forum, Dissent, N Plus One, and elsewhere. And his book, Gun Power, The System of American Violence, will appear from Verso Books later in this year. And he has an article at Gawker, Kyle Rittenhouse is an American. Our country's legal history renders the teen's case familiar, if not inevitable. Welcome to Background Briefing, Patrick Blanchard. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk with you, as always. Well, thank you, Patrick. And at this point, there hasn't been a verdict in the Rittenhouse trial. There's a lot of anticipation. Uh, the governor has deployed the National Guard and demonstrators are gathering outside the courthouse. We don't know, obviously, when there'll be a verdict rendered, but today... The jury requested they wanted to study the FBI drone footage of the actual shooting of the two that were killed and the third that was wounded. And the judge is deciding whether or not they can look at the video once or or more than once, uh, which is pretty extraordinary, frankly, because I would think that the jury has a right to study it. So, so far, the judge is, has appeared to be quite sympathetic to Rittenhouse, but I take it in many respects what's really on trial here is Wisconsin's self-defense law. Yeah, that's um, I think that's an accurate way to put it. And it, it, it is the, the weather. I mean, and I think the example that the, the current impediment that you gestured to, right, that, that the judge is holding up is is questioning or, or deliberating over the legal question of whether or not they can watch robot footage more than once. Right. Uh, which resembles the ways in which I don't know, like. Um, 
football coaches, right, 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 or or, or, or people that can like analyze play by plays in real time before deciding, you know, or can umpires judge stuff? Like it's a sort of absurd Byzantine technicality in some ways, and I think that that gets at the broader point, namely that what is what we're witnessing play out here is a series of uh, contested interpretations in the courtroom between plaintiff and defendant, uh, between the state and the defendant, um, that are being interpreted by a set of people based upon principles that are given to them on the one hand by the judge, but also on the other hand by the law, which describe Wisconsin law, you know, much like in many other states has its own sort of idiosyncrasies on these things, defines this thing that otherwise seems like a straightforward term as self-defense within parameters that are extremely idiosyncratic, right? Like, is it self-defense if you can only watch it, if a third party can only watch it via drone once, right? Is it self-defense if you go somewhere and then, you know, you start something and then you should shoot, somebody gets shot? Is it self-defense? Like, when exa- what exactly are, like, the temporal parameters and the interpretive parameters are all extremely contingent? And and, and I think that's the thing that I, I really want to stress to people because in some ways, like, that that obscures what is the major, the real issue here, which is like, what does it mean when something that seems as straightforward as self-defense actually gets filtered through all these different uh, contestable, contentious, and sometimes even ludicrous mechanisms? Well, apparently this drone footage, as far as the prosecutor is concerned, is that it shows that Kyle Rittenhouse illegally aimed his rifle at the victims, Joseph Rosenbaum, so that he literally aimed the rifle, and that provoked the incident. So I guess to that extent, it's pretty key, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I, I presume within the confines of, of, of how Wisconsin defines everything from brandishing to reasonable interpretation of the threat, right? Like, I, I think that this is, just to, to, to really widen the aperture of what we're talking about here and, and put that in context, right? The question of whether or not he pointed a gun at them might it has to be weighed against, well, who said who to what, right? Was there was there threatening language against which this represented just an escalation or was was there an actual was there dialogue that sounded threatening enough? Right. Like there's a whole sort of interpretive dance that we have to do to to litigate this. And yes, I know I, if he was brandishing his weapon in a way that is also illegal under Wisconsin law and the people who were on the receiving end of where he was pointing his barrel uh, felt threatened and, you know, <laughs> that is a grounds for their self-defense under Wisconsin law, then yes, he's the aggressor in the encounter that that followed under Wisconsin law. But again, like these are, that's a determination being made about Wisconsin law rather than about what I think the nation more broadly is trying to sort of work through, which is namely the the gaps between those laws and the need to treat everything on a case-by-case basis with just the bizarreness of how public protest can be sites of running gunplay involving people who go there to, quote-unquote, defend property or defend themselves. And I think between the legal sort of archaicisms or the legal sort of intricacies and the, the absurdity of the, the kind of nightmarishness of these scenarios, there's a people I don't, don't know what to make where, and people will be talking about one as opposed to about the other. And there's a lot of slippage between those things. And I would suggest that that slippage is happening even inside that courtroom, even inside the jury's deliberation chambers, that they're the common language self, what should be self-evident or what they would seem to be self-evident connotation of things like self-defense or protecting oneself, et cetera, are actually playing out in terms of the, the, the Byzantine and Baroque character of the law on the one hand and personal identifications, fears, fantasies and the like on the other. Right. But when you say what should be clear, it seems just to me and I think to a lot of people, Patrick, what should be clear is that a young man who's underage and illegally carrying a military-style rifle, loaded, ready to fire, points a rifle at somebody whose only weapon, who doesn't have any, he's unarmed, and his only weapon is perhaps that he's guilty of verbal abuse. The guy with the assault rifle, I think, (laughs) I think there's a certain asymmetry there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think, and that asymmetry is the reality of power behind law, and, and the way history shapes what law is. And, and I mean, like, just to give another example here that I think hits the same points. Like, it 
it does it certainly doesn't seem self-evident to me that in Florida 2012, George Zimmerman, who was a self-appointed armed neighborhood watchman for his subdivision, uh, tail racially profiled, tailed uh, and pursued over and against contrary instructions from actual law enforcement, a 17, a child rather, um, pursued a teenage Trayvon Martin. And then we have a situation where they wound up on the ground together. And according to his defense, Trayvon Martin said, you know, I'm going to kill you or some other sort of like absurd uh, action movie sounding thing. The first person Zimmerman shoots him, kills him. But that is an instance of self-defense in the eyes of the law. Right. And, and that's, I think, or the ways in which, you know, and this happens more often than one might think that uh, women or people who are comparatively disadvantaged uh, in terms of just minority status, income, et cetera, may, you know, draw a weapon on someone inside their own home. And when they're legitimately in fear of their lives because that person may be psychologically, sexually, physically abusive, that that actually could be felony brandishing and not self-defense. Right. It, it, the, the seeming obviousness of what these terms mean in actual practice, right, um, contrary to the pieties about the law, contrary to the pieties about the Constitution, contrary even to the self-evidence of these terms, is entirely, um, Ill, it seems entirely illogical, or at least it's illogical only insofar as that you expect those pieties and, 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 those, and those universals to hold. But in fact, as you suggest, and I think anyone watching this can see, what actually matters is power. Right. These abstract encounters in which people can claim self-defense like are not are, don't unfold in a vacuum. Those claims are not equal and universal. That, that the word that you used, asymmetry, is precisely right. There is a asymmetry in context. There is an asymmetry in how courts interpret these things. There's an asymmetry in terms of how the law is formulated. And fundamentally, also, there is the asymmetry that is the asymmetry of someone who's just shot someone standing above someone who was shot and is dead and can't say anything about it. And again, I'm speaking with Patrick Blanchfield, who's a journalist and faculty member of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy Book Forum, Dissent, and N Plus One. And his book, Gun Power, The System of American Violence, will appear from Verso Books later this year. And he has an article at Gawker. Kyle Rittenhouse is an American. Our country's legal history renders the teen's case familiar, if not inevitable. So, Patrick, I mean, what concerns me, in fact, you allude to it in your article where you mention the case of Michael Renault, this white anti-fascist in Portland who shot and killed a far-right Trump supporter during these clashes that went on for some time. He was later killed by police in what looked like a police execution. And it seems to me that What's at stake here is the idea, and this is what Fox News and others, they're making a hero out of Rittenhouse and making a monster out of these victims, the ones that died. You can't even call them victims, according to the judge. He said that you could call them rioters. So, again, he seems to be tipping the scales. And you mentioned that this Senate candidate uh, in Ohio, J.D. Vance, who's being backed, by the way, by the billionaire... Peter Thiel, he described how Rittenhouse was merely defending his community from subhuman thugs and wolves. So what worries me is that there was a recent poll that said that 30% of Republicans believe that they might have to resort to violence in the near future. And 18% apparently thought that it was absolutely necessary to defend our way of life or whatever the the Trump view of the world is from those people. So already you seem to be in a situation where if this trial goes the way that I expect it to go, where, the, where Rittenhouse is acquitted, don't you think there will be more kind of impetus and ammunition to those people that 30% of Republicans that would think, well, yeah, this is the way to go? I mean, I, I share your dread and anxiety over these out, over that broad trajectory that we're on, right? And I think it's really helpful too, just to underscore something we've been talking about for you know for, for, for the entire time together, right? Is like one of the pieties that we have is between like the state and law enforcement as distinct from the civilian populace, 
right? And that their job is maintaining a certain set of principles of order and civilians who don't have them, don't have access to the right, the recourse to force are, you know, exist in a, in a relationship towards uh, being supervised by them, but also some kind of check on them through democratic procedures. We're seeing that distinction be revealed to be, well, no, actually, Kyle Rittenhouse gets tossed bottles of water by cops who tell him that he's happy to be there. And why is he happy? Why are they happy he's there? Well, because he's quote unquote protecting property. But given the fact that the whole thing started when police have been disposing of residents of Kenosha as though they're a property, well, you know, like these terms are not so abstract. They're actually about a whole apparatus that crosses the law enforcement and um, civilian divide and is about maintaining certain types of inequality and violence, right? And so that, I, I think, with an eye towards what your, your concerns, I, I would say that I think that trajectory is in some sense the one we're on and where we're going regardless of what the verdict is, right? These people don't need an excuse and they'll find an excuse no matter what the outcome is. And also they're drawing on a very deep structure of how violence is actually distributed and the prerogative to commit violence without consequences or with minimal consequences is distributed in this country on a longstanding and very historically grounded basis. But the other thing I'd say, and this gets it, I think the this question of like what's called the potentiating structure that makes all this possible, right, is that the concerns that we have about, say, right wing vigilantes killing people or the concerns that we have about the police basically, you know, and, and I, I encourage people to read even the New York Times coverage of what happened to Ryan Hall, right, who, you know, defended himself supposedly at, at an event in, in Portland, killed Trump supporter and who was summarily a case to be made that he was summarily executed by police, right? The conflicting witness testimony, et cetera. And more to the point, too, and this gets at like, you know, the J.D. Vance point as well. After the fact, the president encouraged and endorsed it basically as an extrajudicial killing. Donald Trump at the time was like they had to do it. It was the right thing to do. Right. With that being where we're headed anyways, or it's something we can be concerned about in the future, I think we also have to recognize, and this is the key thing about why it's also important to think about this as being historically grounded, is that that type of violence is already happening and has been happening on a day-to-day -day basis in places that it, other people have normalized it, and the people who live there or the people who are most likely to be the targets of it just sort of have to deal with. Right. We've already had instances of anti-police brutality protests where there have been, you know, um, people have been shoved into bands by law enforcement. A lot of the, the chief, you know, like there's a lot of a, a lot of the people involved in organizing some of the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter like where other anti-police brutality protests over the past several years have not met, have not died quietly in their beds. They've died quite young and violently. Right. right. Well, so the I contrast think, there, though, Patrick, mm -hmm. is the way that the police treated Kyle Rittenhouse after he had killed two people and wounded a third. He said to the police that he was involved in a shooting, and rather than arrest him, they told him to go home and forget about it, you know? Exactly, yeah. That's it. They, essentially, they extended to him prerogatives that they, would, that they have afforded to themselves and that they see themselves as being given and that are given to them. Right. No charges were filed against the police officer who killed the, uh, Jacob Blake and thus precipitated the Kenosha protest to begin, or rather who, who paralyzed Jacob Blake and thus precipitated the protest to begin with. Right. These charges, like there's, there's very little accountability in the system. And that's because the system functions to protect certain people. Right. There's and I think that the outcome here, right, where, where, where Rittenhouse gets sort of like to participate, he, he wanted to be a cop right, and gets treated like a cop, like suggests that. That's because he was participating in a certain type of, you know, prioritizing certain people's interests. And other people are, from the perspective of that system, fairly disposable. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, like, like America could wind up in, like, a bleeding Kansas scenario or, like, uh, imagine, like, various Latin American South disappearances scenario. But, but, but I think we should really just be honest. Like, there's already constant violence that's politically salient and marked by sharply differential degrees of accountability that happens all the time that involves civilians and the police and just the way the whole system works. Well, just in closing, I spoke to a law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison the other day, and he made the remark that uh, in Wisconsin, life is cheap. Yep. Yep. I think, every, I think everywhere in this country, life is cheap, and but different people can afford different degrees of protection from the law or protection in terms of their own illusions that they tell themselves. 
that their life is somewhat less cheap. Whereas other people who, you know, don't have those resources, uh, material or otherwise, have to, to confront that fact much faster. Right. But if this becomes the divide in America, we already have the red-blue divide, the urban-rural divide. And now we have this poisonous political divide that Donald Trump is stoking, this vengeance tour that he's on. And if we get to the point where the 30% of Republicans who feel that violence is necessary, and on the far right there's a lot of talk about civil war, so that's the scenario that bothers me, is that that, that is the direction we're heading in, and, the, and a verdict in this trial acquitting Rittenhouse will put a lot of wind in the sail of those on the far right who believe that violence is necessary and, ine- and inevitable. Yeah. And I think just as, just as possibly, though, he could, his being convicted could serve as a bloody shirt for that outcome, right? And I think the inevitability of people trying to pursue that outcome speaks to how that agenda is grounded in maintaining a certain type of status quo only more so, right? So I, I, by which I mean, like, I, I I'm not worried about, like, America having a civil war in terms of, like, red v. Blue, you know, red v. blue states or, or, or blues and grays, right, to go back to the 1860s thing. I'm worried much more about, you know, like, disappearances and neighbors killing neighbors, but that's already what happens. We just, the question is, will it be more than that? And I think that the two things I, I want to close on are, are that one, like, Americans have gotten, the way violence and exposure to violence in the, is distributed in this country is extremely asymmetrical, right? As you said it, right? Some people are, can go their entire lives without ever thinking that a police officer might be just able to kill them with impunity, Right. Um, some people, you know, can go their entire lives without ever occurring to them that, well, yeah, I can take a gun to a protest because I'm going to protect like somebody's car dealership, right? Other people don't have that luxury. Uh, but the, the other thing I'd say is that if there's any one thing COVID suggests, it's that the American media and like the American collective consciousness has a very robust ability to metabolize and normalize math death. And I think we already metabolize mass incarceration. We already metabolize uh, a whole lot of gun violence and we already metabolize scenarios like this which feel hauntingly familiar and i think that uh our capacity to do that and to maintain a certain type of fiction of normality probably uh one of our defining civilizational characteristics and that could take a i think it could metabolize a whole lot more before you know uh, well it probably just when you think something's unsustainable this country will find some other way to keep going well patrick blanchfield i thank you so much for joining us here today great talking with you And again, I've been speaking with Patrick Blanchfield, who's a journalist and faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His writing on gun violence, mass shootings, and the politics of gun control have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Book Forum, Dissent, and N Plus One. And his book, Gun Power, The System of American Violence, will appear from Verso Books later this year. And he has an article at the Gorka, Kyle Rittenhouse is an American Hero. Our country's legal history renders the teen's case familiar, if not inevitable. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with Chris Anadi, the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, and we'll discuss the defiant attitude of back row Americans who consider their unvaccinated status a badge of honor. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down, and his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town He laughed and kissed his mom and said you're Billy Joe's a man I can shoot Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Chris Anadi, who is a freelance writer and photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Atlantic, The Guardian, Washington Post, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He has a PhD in physics from John Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader at an elite Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document addiction in the Bronx. And he's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And he has an article at his substack, Among the Unvaccinated, Meaning, Death, and Owning the Elites, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Anadi. Uh, thank you for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And we last spoke when your book Dignity came out, and it chronicles what you describe as back row America, the forgotten people in this country, and... Now, your article has certainly got my attention because 
liberals wring their hands, me among them, frankly, trying to figure out why in this country are people not being vaccinated when you've got, what, 760,000 dead Americans and counting, every day more people die. It just seems so manifestly clear that people should get vaccinated to not just to protect themselves, but to protect the vulnerable, to protect children, to protect their loved ones. So give us a sense of what you think is the kind of binding reason behind this objection. I mean, I know you've explored it, and that's why I'm so interested in hearing from you. Yeah, um, well, well, thank you. Um, you know, I want to just make it clear that what I'm talking about here is basically people over 50, and, and, and the demographic of of those involved or similar to those people in my book. It's generally, I, 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 I spend my time in places where a lot of people live, but not a lot of people visit um, and communities that are kind of, you know, the classic term, I guess, is, is left behind, flyover, et cetera, what you want to ever call them. And so generally people without college degrees, hence the term back row. And so that's kind of where I ran across a lot of unvaccinated people. And I, I, I started running across them because about three months ago I started doing i had like the rest of america spent most of my time quarantined and then three months ago i started going out and doing what i do again which in this case was walking around the country um and i started meeting people who would what what i found interesting and what struck me is what i try to get about my piece is is how central being unvaccinated is to the people i met i generally operate by just hanging out and not aggressively you know, I, I don't put a camera in people's faces. I don't put a microphone in people. I just let them come to me and talk to me. And so many people came up to me. I'm clearly an outsider in many cases and just told me outright. One of the first to second things they would tell me was they were unvaccinated, kind of like in an introductory way. I'm, you know, I'm blank from blank. Uh, my mom grew up near here. I'm a hairdresser and I'm unvaccinated as a way of introduction, as a way who, of who they are. And it struck me how central to to their identity, being unvaccinated has become as this way of saying, this is who I am. I'm this person who has chosen this path. And in many cases, that's, you know, that's, that's very much, if you kind of dig a little deeper, that's driven by this sense of, I don't really have a lot of control in my life. Um, I've been kind of made fun of by broader culture, by in specific instances, as kind of this, you know, to use this term that they would use. Um, I don't mean it, mean it in a derogatory sense, a loser, somebody who's, you know, kind of <laughs> a deplorable, if you want. Um, and so I, every time you, you, you people, you know, you credentialed people, you, you, spec, you, you experts, you fancy you people with your fancy degrees have ever told me what to do, it's been wrong. And so I'm going to do the opposite of that. And so you say to get vaccinated, I'm not going to get vaccinated um, as a way to basically, you know, kind of staking a claim of, of some sort of identity marker. Um, and it's become very, very, very central to the point of them telling me out of the like, as a way of introduction, you know, just kind of in small talk um, and, and being proud of it. And, you know, and that's a, that's a, you know, I, I happen, you know, full cards on table. I, I, I come from the left in general. Um, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic towards the claims of people who say they find, you know, the elites have, have, have wronged them. But in this particular case, I'm not, you know, I, <laughs> uh, I think you should get vaccinated. I think people should get vaccinated. And I, I myself am vaccinated. And so it's one of the cases where it put me in very awkward situations of, understanding why they might have gotten there, but not necessarily agreeing with where they are. And it's such a remarkably reckless decision, but one that they're taking, um, you know, in a, in a very, uh, I say thoughtful way because they thought about it. This isn't you know, a rash decision. This is something they've come to and they've convinced themselves that this is, this is, this is the right thing to do. And how much do you think the media on the right, particularly the Tucker Carlson's of the world, have they influenced people? Because some of the people you talked to said, you know, the vaccines are full of rat poison and, you know, you've got that wonderful picture you have in your article. 
Gates, Fauci, fraud. There's a lot of it out there in, on the right wing media. Is that is that a factor? Um, you know, the demographics of who I'm talking about are not just people on the right. You know, there's a, there's a there's a high there's a fair percentage of minorities involved who you know who don't watch Fox. Um, I don't think the the dialogue on the right has helped. Um, I think it's bust already it, it bust it buttressed uh, kind of a, it pushed people in a direction they're already heading. It solidified where they went. But one of the things I try to I, I wish I had written a little bit more about in the piece is I've been spending at this point roughly 12 years in these type of communities. Um, black, white, Hispanic, Latino, um, places that are, again, mostly defined by people without uh, college degrees. And you hear a lot of very um, <laughs> unconventional views. Um, you know, I, you can, I, I think we would call them conspiracy theories, but I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit more um, all over the place than that. You get used to hearing a lot of things like, oh, there's rat poison in blank or, you know, hurricanes cause, you know, satellites cause hurricanes, just things that are kind of like, you know, all over the map. And so it's not clear to me that what when you hear when you hear the, the explanation, the justification, um, it's not necessarily consistent. Meaning, it's not something that is being kind of quote spoon fed to them. You know, it's things that a lot of it's local rumors, and it's you know you can't really push back against because you know in one particular case I, I mentioned, I think it was in central Pennsylvania, and the person was you know, and this person particularly had voted for Biden. They're very 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 firm about that. Um, that, you know, Miss Betty from whatever the name of the town over was, um, she got the shot and she, then she got a stroke and died. And then her sister the next day got the shot, got a stroke and died. I really highly doubt that happened. Um, I'm, it could be that Miss Betty, you know, had a stroke a week later, or the uncon unconnected to the vaccine. But, um, but you know that story is now spreading like wildfire through through the communities, um, and so you know it's now become in, in this sense a local truth. Miss um, Betty died from from the vaccine. Miss Betty's sister died from the vaccine, and you kind of hear that stuff if you spend a lot of time in these communities about everything. Kind of lo local local rumors, local local folk tales, kind of become. And it's not clear that, that, again, that's not directed from any, you know, <laughs> large, that's just a, a skepticism about authority that was already pre-existed this mm -hmm. pandemic that has been made worse by this pandemic, partly because I, I will say that I think a lot of the, the kind of policy around the pandemic, around COVID, as it's filtered down to people who are not heavy news users, has been kind of you know, in, confusing and in many cases illogical and, and doesn't 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 fit common sense. So COVID policy is something that touches everybody. You can be politically completely blind and not have any interest in politics, but you have interest in COVID policy because you can't escape it. It's everywhere. It, it, it literally has been with us now for close to over two years. And it's very mercurial and volatile as it filters down to the general public. And so people have a heavy, there's a huge skepticism at this point of the quote expert class of the, of the, of the public health officials that has just created this environment where the right wing media comes in and, and, you know, causes even more chaos and it's just make it all the wall. It's made even worse. But again, I want to emphasize, this is not just white Trump voters. This is a lot of, um, I've met Biden voters. I've met a lot of minorities who, who speak, who have the same language. Language is something that's kind of kind of out there in what I call the back row. And again, I'm speaking with Chris Anadi, who's a freelance writer and photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Atlantic, The Guardian, Washington Post, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader at an elite Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document addiction in the Bronx. And he's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And he has an article at his Substack among the unvaccinated, meaning death and owning the elites, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. So it is amazing that this has become a badge of honor 
and of course in your book Dignity, and one of the questions I asked you back when I talked to you last, Chris, was that puzzlement about poor and destitute people feeling completely marginalised at the same time, you know, voting against their interests, if you will, if they do vote at all, in supporting Trump. And and you mentioned in your article that uh, that in this case, uh, talking about the unvaccinated, uh, one of them said, everyone is equally corrupt, but at least Trump is honest about it. So the alienation in this country is so extraordinary, and it, it's both on the left and the right. And this seems like a weird distortion of individualism and freedom. You know, you can make the case, the ironic case, that liberty in America now threatens life and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, I mean, I think there. one of the things that I, at least what, you know, there's a lot of things that are sad here to me. Um, one of the things that frustrates me is, you know, when when you feel like you, well, I think the way I phrase it some, to someone else was like, you know, if you feel like the only thing, the only thing you have to hang your hat on, the only thing identity-wise, the only thing that you feel like you can you can um, kind of exert, you know, a community to join is one in which you know you're, you're making a reckless decision. That that to me is a the sign of a much larger problem. Like you know, we have what I call a meaning gap out there. If if you're so you know so desperate to join a community that the community you join is one where it's defined by its recklessness, um, and now, again. Many people don't see this as recklessness, so they wouldn't frame it that way. But from an outsider, it's reckless. Um, I think that shows, you know, one of the things I do when I when I go into these, you know, we do so so much around COVID policy on both sides, on the vaccinated, unvaccinated, is symbolic, is is about kind of gestures, of identity gestures. You know, when I wrote this piece, a lot of people pointed out, um, you know, that the vaccinated. Very, there are many people out there who vaccinate who who make it their identity as well. They post on their Facebook, they um, they use a lot of um, language a lot around that to say, "Look at me, I'm I'm vaccinated." I think one of the things is is that um, there is there is a sense that um, being unvaccinated is is. For me to for me to have credibility in this community, I know that if I go into a bar, if I go into a restaurant, if I go into um, you know, a sports arena where I'm talking to people, I can't wear a mask because if I wear a mask, immediately they judge me. I come loaded with, uh, here's an expert. Here's somebody who is not part of the crew. Here's somebody who I can't necessarily trust. And so I think so much of what goes on is a symbolic kind of, look, I'm a member of this camp, you know, or I'm a member of that camp. And I know that if I go in with a mask and kind of, you know, go into the stores or the convenience store with a mask, that immediately I'm going to be judged as somebody who doesn't have credibility with the community, um, given the communities I'm in. And what that tells me, what what that says is how much of this is about you know, try forming different camps, political camps, um, social camps, you know, def- who define themselves by <laughs> by whether or not you take the vaccine or whether or not you wear masks. And that to me is this kind of this fundamental problem we have this where, you know, if, if, if we feel we have to keep on doing this as a way to feel, you know, involved, we have to. We have, we get force. We can't. We can't have these kind of nuanced views on life, because you know that will exclude us from our, from this community. That's really that's a really bad place for the country to be. So, well, just in the last couple of minutes, Chris, in Austria, for example, they are keeping unvaccinated people in lockdown. They literally can't leave their homes unless they are going to get a shot, and you could never do that in this country, of course, but. What is the answer here, if there is one, in terms of, because we know that you need to get herd immunity for the, before this thing goes away, and of course everybody in the world has to be vaccinated, and that's a huge heavy lift, but just in terms of your experience and talking to the people who, you know, wear the fact that they're unvaccinated as a badge of pride, did you ever come up with any reason? I know you're not intrusive when you talk to people, but is there anything that can be done? It has to be. I think there are kind of three three worrisome things one is um 
I, I think there's I don't know what percentage of the population is. It's it's non-trivial. Um, let's say let's say 20 percent, 15. And again, here I'm I'm talking about people you know people who who are not going to get vaccinated, no matter how much you punish them, no matter how much you try to reward them, they're not going to do it at this point. It's just it's and again, it's one of the things that the more you encourage them to do it, the more or punish them, they're just going to dig in their heels. Um, it's become who they are. It's it's kind of like their hill they're going to die on. So I think policy has to come up with grapple with that. To the degree, I think there are effective tools to convince people. It's very much about it's going to require a lot of community outreach. That's very um, that's very very labor intensive. Meaning it's kind of going doing what I did, which is going into places and kind of finding the person, not not the credentialed person. Again, it's very important that it it, it comes from somebody like them. You know, if I've been able to convince people to rethink their view by just kind of, you know, having chats that kind of last that I don't focus on it. I just make it, you know, it's, I bring we bring it up in conversation. If you're talking to someone for over an hour, sitting at a bar talking to somebody for an hour and a half, you kind of re, you kind of move the conversation back and forth between it. You don't you don't obsess about it. You don't you don't drill on it. You just kind of say, hey, you know, I'm not so sure about Miss Betty. I, I think that's probably, you know, that's probably a coincidence. And, you know, and then you bring up, oh, I have, you know, my neighbor, he, he, he died, you know, of COVID. You try to remind people that the, you know, you kind of kind of gently just mentioned the statistics, you know, <laughs> like, you know, because I, I actually got a, one of the rare side effects from the vaccine. I got Bell's palsy, which I mentioned in the piece. And, you know, people can still, even six months later, somebody can notice that if I, when I point it out. And I try to say, look, you know, he, I would still, you know, <laughs> they say, well, look, you got, you know, you got a side effect. And I said, well, it's, it's immensely rare. I got very, very unlucky. But I said, you know, it's also my, my chances of dying are 10 times less. That's huge. You know, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. well, you know, that's, you know, let's just, let's just think about 10 times less. That's like, you know, <laughs> you know, if we had to roll the dice, would you, would you, would you play that game where, you know, <laughs> if, you know, I, you roll a 10, you know, or one. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, you got to put it in very simple terms and, and do it in a way that really kind of just doesn't, doesn't embarrass them, you know, and doesn't, doesn't try to make them feel, you know, just rethink their, their and just go, you know, there's other, you can, and, you know, focus on things like, you know, if they have grandkids and things such as that. Um, but it, it has to come, it's very labor intensive, you know, it's got, it's got to, and I think you can do it, if you change a few people who are within the community valley, like, you know, it literally means going like bowling alley to bowling alley, bar to bar, um, you know, uh, community, Walmart to Walmart, Mount McDonald's to Mount McDonald's. It's just a lot of work. And, you know, I think putting, putting a TV personality on the TV, putting like a talking head on the TV and saturating it with ads, I don't think really works. I actually mm -hmm. think it's going to cause people to dig in. Well, Chris, I thank you for what you brought to the table here. It's very, very interesting and very helpful. And thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And again, I was being with Chris Anadi, who is a freelance writer and photographer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Washington Post, Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He has a PhD in physics from John Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader at an elite Wall Street bank before leaving in 2012 to document addiction in the Bronx. He's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, and he has an article at his Substack, Among the Unvaccinated, Meaning, Death, and Owning the Elites, which we'll link to at backgroundbriefing.org. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Trump's vengeance tour in West Virginia, where he is backing a congressman he is endorsing over another Republican congressman who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Mother, should I trust the government?
just a waste of time. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne-Marie Lafarza, who's a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, where she teaches labor and employment law, jurisprudence, and comparative labor law. She's also a research scholar for the NYU Center for Labor and Employment and previously spent 10 years as an attorney with the National Labor Relations Board's appellate and Supreme Court branches. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne-Marie Lafarza. Thank you. So, Anne-Marie, I'm interested in how the... Build Back Better plan of Biden's, which is largely being held up by Senator Joe Manchin, is playing in West Virginia, and it comes into stark relief in this revenge tour of Donald Trump's, where he's supporting this GOP representative, Alex Mooney, against another GOP representative, David McKinley, who I believe is your congressman. Now, They've redistricted. One of them is going to lose their seat. But Trump is backing and plugging Mooney, who went down to Mar-a-Lago and got, you know, kissed the ring and got the blessing of the dear leader, whereas McKinley had the temerity to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which just passed in the House. So that's playing out there. So who's going to win, Trump and his his guy Mooney or David McKinley? Well, right now I put my money on McKinley, um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is just if you look at the map, the map are mostly his constituents, meaning McKinley's constituents. So the real question is whether or not um, people in his area are going to jump ship and go for Mooney. And the only reason that they would do that is if they think Mooney would be better. But um, the infrastructure bill is actually very popular in West Virginia. Now, Biden's not particularly popular in West Virginia, but there's a disconnect between Biden and the infrastructure bill. And so what's really been the focus is uh, mansion and infrastructure. And so Right now, I think McKinley has the edge. Now, things can change because Mooney has more money right now. But we can't forget about the Democratic vote, which um, the Democrats or a lot of people are independents um, in West Virginia. They could decide to vote in in the primary and vote for um, – well, the independents could vote for the Republican, and they would um, tend to – they would break toward McKinley right now. So it's it's – I don't think Trump has the the magic in West Virginia that he has over who he already had. And he lost a lot of supporters with the insurrection. So a lot of people who voted for Trump have, at least in my area, shown a lot of misgivings since then. So at least from what I'm seeing in the northern part of West Virginia is that People are not talking about Trump. They're not talking about MAGA. They're talking about Mansion. They're talking about infrastructure. So I would say that um, the concerns are much more about we want infrastructure. We want people to think about us. We want the money to come here and not to go back to the coasts. And that's what the interests are in West Virginia. And my understanding is that West Virginia GOP Senator Shelley Moore Capito, who's very popular in the state, she voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill along with Senator Manchin, and she's definitely not happy with Trump supporting Mooney, and she has praised McKinley for his vote, and she's called him an experienced legislator. So she said that she'll be neutral in the House race, but I get the impression that, well, this is, I'll just quote from what she said. David was brave to do it. He knew, he knew what he was getting into when he made that vote because he believed in it. So he's going to be ready to defend it. So it looks as if, even if she's staying neutral, pretty clear that she seems to support McKinley over, over Mooney. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, and obviously I can't get into her head, but I think that, people who care about West Virginia as opposed to purely power are going to um, realize that the infrastructure was very important 
for West Virginia and West Virginians. If we don't get infrastructure, we have the worst infrastructure in the country and possibly the worst, if not the worst infrastructure, the second worst. It's really among the absolute worst in the country. And we need we need the money coming in here. But also, remember, West Virginians are conservative and they don't want overspending. And so as a result, um, I think they actually like what Manchin is doing. And I realize that Manchin is unpopular with a lot of the Democrats um, in general, but um, he's meaning across the country, but he's un- he's unpopular with I think progressive Democrats, which are a small portion of the Democratic Party. If you look at Democrats in West Virginia and independents and even Republicans in West Virginia that are not Trump Republicans, they tend to be social conservatives. Well, the Democrats are social liberals, but there's a very strong libertarian streak. There is, so they don't want government, but if they do want government's help, they want it because they want help to them, which they've been ignored for a long time. So they want government to stay out of most things. They don't want, except I will say the one ex- another exception to this would be abortion. So West Virginians are very, like 50-50 on abortion. You would think it would be higher, right? It would be more against abortion, but they're 50-50 um, uh, where some would just not want abortion in any circumstance. So it's pretty extreme. And then a little over 50% would want abortion, at least in some circumstances, um, like the death of the mother and things like that. So we have, um, which means they would want the government to regulate that and make sure that there was no abortions, um, at least in most circumstances. But for the most part, they want their guns um, because in West Virginia, if you have a gun, you're hunting your you're hunting food, you're not hunting people, and they want to be left alone. And if they're not left alone, they want something for their tax dollars, and that's the infrastructure, which is very popular. So I actually do think I am actually very proud of my representative um, for doing that. I know that's what we wanted. And I think that um, I think a lot of Democrats who realize that they're not going to be able to get a Democrat in especially with the, with the way it's been restructured, may very well choose to, um, to change to independent and vote. And you can't discount that. That's a pretty large, significant, significant amount of, of votes. And there's already a lot of people that change to independents. And independents are breaking not for the Trump Republicans. They're, they're breaking for more like um, Capitol. Or Man- Mansion, right? That's Capitol Mansion really represents the majority of what West Virginia is, not Mooney. But Mooney right. does represent a certain aspect of West Virginia, but they, it didn't break in his favor. The way the, 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 the restructuring the map does not break in his favor. Right, but this primary election, which has already begun, obviously, that it's scheduled on May the 10th of 2022, so since Trump is so visible and made such a strong case for Mooney, it's likely to shape up as a kind of referendum on Trump more than anything else, right? Well, yes, possibly. But I wouldn't take what West Virginia does as necessarily signaling what the rest of the country will do. You'd have to look at it more on a, for example, Morgantown is going to just be Morgantown is going to be what college city cities do, college campuses do, right? So it's going to be a little more left wing. It's going to be a little bit more, more, a little more liberal. I mean, nothing in West Virginia is, but no, there's no real concentration of left wing power at this point. But there also remember that um, infrastructure means jobs, and that's what West Virginia really wants. So, are they it, the referendum on Trump? if that's what he tries to make it like is that I think that is exactly what they're going to try to try to make it. But here's a couple of facts that I think would work in McKinley's favor. One is McKinley voted with Trump more than Mooney did Two, two, um, remember West Virginians do not like what they would, you know, people who are from out of state. And so they, they are mistrusting of anyone telling them what to do. So to the extent that, Although I would say that Mooney is seen as a, is, as a West Virginia insider, he still has Maryland roots. 
And so it wouldn't surprise me if um, he would, if McKinley wouldn't use that as a tactic and say that, um, that remember, Mooney is not from here originally. So that could, now that won't always work because, as you know, um, our attorney general is from New Jersey. So we do have a, quite a few outsiders. But, and, but I think that West Virginians are very independent in how they see things. They don't care what other people do. And so this, I wouldn't read too much into this referendum for the rest of the country. Um, West Virginia has always been odd. Remember, it was, it's the last of the Dixiecrat states to go Democrat. And that should tell you a lot. Sure. Well, just in closing, Mick Kinley's already gone after Mooney for the fact that he's, he comes from Maryland. He said, I don't know what the infrastructure was like in Maryland. So, <laughs> Yeah, which is significantly better than it is in West Virginia. The problem is it's much more expensive, much more expensive to build roads in West Virginia than any other part of the country. And what I think Manchin is doing is, I hope what Manchin is doing, and I know Manchin's an excellent politician, so he probably is, is saying, okay, you're spending a lot of money. My constituents don't like that. But, you, but we, when we have spent money in the past, it hasn't gone into West Virginia uh, for a long time. So we need some of that money. So you need to show us why we are spending this kind of money. And um, now... I personally feel that the infrastructure bill is not as large as some in the media are making it out to be. And part of that is because it's really over a long period of time. And so it, it seems like a much bigger number than it is. But Manchin's made a reasonable calculation for his constituents that they would think that the $3.5 trillion was just way too large. And it, that's that, when I say that's a reasonable calculation, meaning it's reasonably calculated to understanding his own constituents, what they're going for, what they want. Um, and there's, you can tell Shelley Moore Capito is an extremely popular politician in the state. And um, she's done a lot. She's willing to spend money when it's for coal miners and for other um, members of our community. And uh, for her to vote in the, in favor of this shows also that it must be popular. So I think Mooney is going to have a hard time convincing they're going to have to convince West Virginians that um, that somehow Trump knows better for West Virginia and yet he didn't deliver on jobs here right well Anne-Marie I thank you for joining us I appreciate it oh well uh, thank you for having me I really appreciate it Ian you have a really nice day <laughs> well thank you and again I'm speaking with Anne-Marie LaFazza who's a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law where she teaches labor and employment law jurisprudence and comparative labor law she's also a research scholar at the NYU Center for Labor and Employment and previously spent 10 years as an attorney with the National Labor Relations Board's appellate and Supreme Court branches this has been Background Briefing I'm Ian Masters I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon if you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources articles and books discussed on the program also you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. and we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting and I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone